Well, good evening, everybody. And um, I just want to honor you for your work so far. You've really held a beautiful container in support of one another. Um, I felt honored to be in the groups today to, with with you folks that I met and and witness and experience the courage and earnest uh, effort that you're putting forth to just understand your humanity to greater and greater levels. So I think we're off to a, a terrific start. Um, and day two, you, you, you're still here, so we, we're, we're doing great. Um, I want to start with a uh, with a poem tonight, and it's called "What the Heart Cannot Forget." Everything remembers something. The rock, its fiery bed, cooling and fissuring into cracked pieces, the rub of watery fingers along its edge. The cloud remembers being elephant, camel, giraffe, remembers being a veil over the face of the sun, gathering itself together for the fall. The turtle remembers the sea, sliding over and under its belly, remembers legs like wings, escaping down the sand under the beaks of savage birds. The tree remembers the story of each ring, the years of drought, the floods, the way things came walking slowly towards it long ago. And the skin remembers its scars, and the bone aches where it was broken. The feet remember the dance, and the arms remember lifting up the child. The heart remembers everything it loved and gave away, everything it lost and found again, and everyone it loved. The heart cannot forget. The heart remembers everything it loved and gave away, everything it lost and found again, and, every, and everyone it loved. The heart cannot forget. So everyone here tonight is a member of the sole remaining hominid family. And you do remember the collective memories of our tribe are carried by you. They're in you. They move through you. And throughout the course of time on this earth, there's been... 20 or more hominid uh, families but there's only one left. Um, I don't know if anybody's been to the Natural History Museum recently but in the last, I think it's the last four years they have a wonderful exhibit called the Orange Origins of Humanity or something like that and it's really worthwhile. It kind of takes you through the history of our species 
and they have these uh, incredibly sculpted models of what these different uh, hominids looked like, and it explains when they lived, etc. And so they've discovered like 20 or more of these um, of these types of hominid, but really only one remains. You know. And when I walk through that exhibit, I've been there like three times. I don't know. I'm just drawn into it. And I look at these kind of mock-ups of these people and um, just imagine them their time on this planet, kind of looking up in the stars just like we do and kind of like wondering like, what is going on? You know, how did this all happen? You know? And I imagine them struggling in their own ways with harmony amongst their group and and those others in that valley across the way, the dangerous ones, you know, and how they trying to work out some kind of harmony within their group and with other groups, just like us. And like us, they feared for their safety and survival almost every day, these energies moving through them. So there is no more Neanderthal, there's no more Australopithecus or Homo habilis. or It's just us. So you are and we are all the spawn of the surviving branch of hominid. And every person we encounter is of the same tribe. That's what's left. And so these energies of our ancestors, they continue to course through us. And I, and I, can, and I also like to think back and I imagine my ancestors in somewhere in East Africa living in the tree and somehow deciding to come down and then walk in the, in the vast savanna, the trepidation that they must have felt. And then they had to learn to like stand upright, to look over the grasses. No wonder why we have backaches. You know, it hasn't been that long. So... But the success that we've had, we've spread everywhere. And so when you sit here quietly on retreat, you're visited by these, all these archetypal energies of your ancestors. And because you're relatively more quiet, you're experiencing them more vividly than you do in your kind of fast-paced, multitasking, cluttered daily life, at least relative to what's going on here. And when you train yourself in meditation, a major component of this practice is cultivating a a more expansive and healthier relationship to these energies, these survival energies. In a way, you could say you come here on retreat and you're coming to terms with your humanity just as it is. And befriending those energies. And then, what's interesting about spiritual practice, we're finding and exploring ways to kind of modify the evolutionary constraints of those energies. We're cultivating a heart and mind with, with 
that's moving toward greater wisdom and compassion. We're pushing the envelope of evolution. That's what a spiritual practice does. We're just right out there on the edge. Well, you know, how open can my heart be? You know, how clearly can I see? But that's what you do here. We're pushing that, that envelope of evolution. And so each morning you come here at 9 o'clock and you're given some pretty simple instructions. They're simple in description, but as you probably found out the last couple of days, they're not so easy to carry out. Your mind is shameless. It'll just do anything, go anywhere. It's, it will race around like a, like a hummingbird on a triple espresso. You know? Or on the, other, on the other end of the continuum, there's this kind of like swamp-like morass that kind of takes you under, you know. And everything in between has happened. And so one of the, one of the main points of the talk tonight, and I love speaking about these energies because the more I practice, the, the more important I think they are that we come into relationship with them is that all these energies, all these ancestral energies that are pulsing, these survival juices that kind of roll through us, that even those energies, and especially those energies, deserve your acceptance, your understanding, and, and your appreciation. So tonight I want to share a perspective on those energies that to me personally... Uh, has brought a whole lot more ease in my life. It's allowed a greater measure of self-acceptance, a growing magnitude of affection for myself. And so tonight we're going to look at these energies, these survival energies that have been gifted to you by your ancestors. And in doing so, I'll explore with you how each one of these energies uh, in essence, is trying to help you. In Pali, a language in northern India around the time of the Buddha, um, these energies are called nivarana. That literally translates as coverings, or that which hinders clear seeing. Coverings, or that which hinders clear seeing. That which covers our natural perfected heart-mind. And and that perfected heart-mind that I'm speaking about, every single one of you has experienced it on numerous occasions. You know, it's in those times when you're feeling safe, you're feeling connected, you know, your heart is open. It happens. Maybe in a moment you're kind of awestruck by this this life that you've fallen into, the mystery of this creation. Maybe when you hold an infant. I just got back from seeing my 14-month-old granddaughter. I mean, it was like incredible. You know, looking, looking into her eyes and thinking back to my mother and grandmother and father and grandfather and back and back. And here's this little gene pool, giving it a go, you know. 
So maybe you, maybe you experience that, that opening of that heart, that natural perfected heart, when you sit in nature and allow your senses to receive, you know. Or maybe simply looking in the eyes of a loved one, you know, and really feeling their goodness. That's the experience of a perfected heart-mind. It's there. It's, it's awake. It's knowing. It has a ceaseless responsiveness to it. And it's an open, peaceful heart. But as everybody here has experienced, this perfected heart-mind is often covered over with some level of anxiety Maybe some fear, maybe some anger, maybe some shame, maybe some guilt. Uh, but it's there. And uh, I'm reminded of the strength of this natural perfected heart. Mine, oftentimes when I'm uh, teaching at the prison, there's a, we've had a program at the Virginia Maximum Security Prison for Women the last 13 years. And these are, it's a maximum security. A lot of these people are in there for a long time. Uh, they live in cages. Uh, they've all been traumatized in every possible uh, imaginable way. But yet, there is this beautiful, indefatigable kind of goodness that I experience on every visit. You know, just giving a little bit of security, a little bit of safety, you know, a supportive space. That's all it takes. And that compa- those compassionate hearts just flow over for each other, for those of us who are teaching there. It's really creation still able to express its true nature in the most dire situation. Everybody's seen the little plant pushing its way through the crack in the sidewalk and we probably all wondered like look at that the power of life you know but the life and this perfected heart mind won't be denied there's that Leonard Cohen line um, there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in so these energies Classically, these energies that obscure, they're known as hindrances, but I don't call them that anymore. Uh, I personally have taken to referring to them as uh, survival energies, challenging energies, or on a more positive note, uh, supportive friends, or gifts of my ancestors, or even my limbic lovers, you know? (laughs) So traditionally, they're broken into five categories. Uh, The first category of these survival energies is wanting or lust. It's the wanting mind, grasping. The second category is aversion. It's the flip side of the wanting mind. And that includes the energies of anger, fear, guilt, shame. Um, It's the non-wanting mind. Third category is restlessness and worry. Anybody ever experienced that one? (laughs) 
but it's a survival energy. You know? Another category is sleepiness and dullness, or classically called sloth and torpor. I remember being in uh, Costa Rica on a trip there and just watching this sloth. It was incredible how slow it moved, you know. It would be great on retreat, you know, the kind of (laughs) crawling meditation, you know. But I think I learned they only come down out of the trees to go to the bathroom, you know. Anyway. And the last category is doubt. And we're all familiar with these. These are energies of life, not just practice energies that visit you here. They're, they're in your life all the time. So that case that I want to make tonight, that those energies are the organism loving itself. They're mysterious primal energies. They're mostly driven by the survival instincts and they, they come out of the deep subconscious, the primitive parts of the brain, the limbic system. But they're designed to ensure your survival. They're inheritance from your ancestors. And, and all of your ancestors were brilliant, crafty. You know, they kept the gene pool going. They didn't drop the ball. So we're all descended from these kind of brilliant, crafty ancestors who were smart enough and had a strong enough kind of power of these survival energies to get us here. Think about all those other hominid groups. Didn't, they didn't make it. But our ancestors, they brought us here. So, but these energies are often misguided. You know, we've got to be careful with them because they don't have a broad wisdom. They're just generally fueled by that very primitive fight, flight, freeze reaction. And if you're unaware of them when they're up and active, you know, if the if the moment by moment mindfulness isn't strong enough. It's easy to get enslaved by them. You know, they can make a mess of your life. And by extension, they can make a mess of your family and make a mess of your community and make a mess of this world. We, we see how that plays out when these energies just run rampant. Okay? But I've really landed over these years and discovered that holding these energies with uh, respect and appreciation is... Uh, as protectors and allies, it's really the way to go. Almost as lovers. It's a, it's a kind of, it helps smooth the path of practice. Because if you're going to hold these energies as, uh, these energies of wanting, lust, anger, fear, guilt, shame, whatever, doubt as your enemy that has to be denied or repressed, it just sets you up for internal strife internal fragmentation, and in the worst, worst cases, self-loathing. Yeah. These energies, they can just, they're so much a part of our life, and they, they, they can be on us instantaneously. 
seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, you can be, <clears throat> you can come out of a sitting. Say you're, you're doing a sitting here, and it's been kind of a rough sitting. You're restless, and you've got all this doubt, and you're wondering, like, oh, God, I, 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 maybe my nervous system is so damaged, I can't ever settle down, and this is just cr- crazy monkey mind, and it's not going anywhere. And so, so you might start with a little doubt, and you wander into the dining hall, you know, Oh, but immediately you spot your favorite food. You know, it's like one of your favorite comfort foods, whatever it might be. And you're thinking, oh boy, I can't wait, you know. And, and then there's wanting, this desire. There's this salivation, the whole thing's going on. But then it's like you're in this line and, and the person in front of you is in some kind of somnambulant trance. You know, they're, they're working the tray and they're kind of lifting moving, dropping, lifting, moving. And you're thinking, and then this, you're kind of contracting and this fire's coming up. It's like, what are they dumb? You know, what's the matter with this person? Don't they know there's a whole line behind them? We don't have, you know? And so then there's anger, you know? Aversion is there, you know? So you've very quickly gone from, gone ripped through, through, through doubt, through um, wanting, through aversion. So then you get to, your, get to your thing that you want, whatever it is. I don't know, baba ganoush, mashed potatoes, whatever your thing is. And you pile it up on your plate. And there's not much left in the tray. And it's a kind of comfort food for you now. You know it's going to feel good. And boy, it's been rough, you know, trying to meditate. And then you, you're scraping the tray, you know, and you got this big pile. And then you notice there's still a bunch of people behind you and they're watching you. And then there's guilt and shame, you know, because you're kind of this gluttony has come out, you know. And, and so that's some other flavors of aversion. And you go and sit down, and, but you've got your food. And, ah, and you're shoveling it in and it feels so good. And you're eating and eating and you're feeling really full and... You know, just, you deserve it. You know, it's been hard. And you notice, well, I'm, I'm a little tired now. You know, my belly's so full. And I think, ah, I've kind of worked hard enough today. Maybe I'll just go take a long nap. And I've got this kind of trashy novel in the car. Maybe I'll get that out, you know. And, and so then sloth and torpor, you know. So just in a matter of moments, you've had the whole deal, one after the other. Sometimes they seem to come all at once. So but your mindfulness practice, this is very interesting, you know, supports your capacity to not only be with these energies, but to cool them. And it does it skillfully and automatically just by doing your regular practice. I mean, the moment that you notice what's up for you, you become awake to the arising, whatever it is, particular energy, wanting, aversion, etc. At that moment, you've got a new relationship with that arising energy. It's qualitatively different. Um, You know, as you're mindful of that energy... Well, first of all, you're not lost in it anymore. Um, 
You're not submerged in it. You're not identified with it. You're not enslaved in it. It's still happening, but your relationship is different because you've recognized it. That moment of recognition brings a little spaciousness into the picture. It's a healthier new relationship to whatever is happening. And as you develop some continuity of mindfulness, the ability to know more of what's happening when it's happening in real time, this power of concentration or samadhi starts to increase. And the elements of this growing samadhi, this gathering of the energies of the heart-mind, naturally relax these challenging survival energies. So I want to go under the hood here and look at the elements of samadhi with you. It's a little wonky, but um, you might find it interesting how the five elements of samadhi cool the five major Um, challenging survival energies that you deal with in your whole life. Okay, the first element of of samadhi is called, in in Pali, is called vitaka. And its translation is aiming and connecting. And that counteracts sleepiness. And I'm going to ring the bell, and I just want you to like Hear the bell. Aim your attention and connect with this sound. I'll do it one more time. In that moment of connection, there's not sleepiness. It's wakeful. It's bright. If there was sleepiness, it's gone, at least for that moment. And of course, there's different levels of sleepiness. You know, everybody now knows, and there's all this research coming out about how chronically underslept we are and how, how, um, you know, how that's destructive to our health in so many different ways. So that's basically, that's how we roll in our culture. Everybody's underslept and and over-caffeinated. Um, and then we've got, on top of that, we've got personal biorhythms. Morning people, night people, afternoon people. But a more interesting type of sleepiness is called sinking mind. That's when there's, pre- and some of you describe it today in your practice, and that's when you've got pretty good steadiness of mind, but the, the energy, the alertness, isn't quite up there to meet that steadiness. It's like there's brownout conditions. You know, it's like it's... Uh, you're kind of mindful, but it's, it's dim. You know? And at the beginning of a retreat or after lunch, when you sit up here, it's often, you know, like a sea of bobbleheads. <laughs> Nala was talking about that last night. There's that jerking motion. And sometimes that'll snap you wide awake, but... Other times you just drift back into the fog. And you might also notice if you have your eyes open that it may be happening up here too. You know? <laughs> so, so at those times, the vitaka, the connecting with the object, uh, just isn't juiced enough. The balance is some, somehow is off between the calming and energetic factors. <clears throat> 
Now, if you've got chronic sleepiness in meditation, it could be the result of a life a little or a lot out of balance. Or maybe you're having some resistance to some difficult emotion that probably needs to be felt through, whether it's sorrow, grief, loneliness, whatever. Um, and your system is just kind of, let's just go to sleep. Another way to look at sloth and torpor is not being alive to what's, what's happening now, right now. In meditation, that manifests as sleepiness. In life, it can kind of be that feeling of waiting for life to begin, waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. You know? You know, I'm dismayed by our film industry. It's like, it's geared to this, most of the films that are produced are geared to this high-intensity stimulation. Explosions, car chases, the intense special effects, kind of nerve-shattering sights and sounds. You know, all this to keep the audience awake and interested. Is that what we need? You know? And the internet's a little creepy, too. It's like all these kind of gimmicky things to like get you to click here and click there and they have some kind of tantalizing come on, you know, click, 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 you know. So as you cultivate a meditation practice, it takes time to get acclimated to the subtleties of experience because that's what we're doing here and not just doze off in between uh, intense stimulation. Right, now, the, now, the second element of uh, samadhi, the first element, aiming and connecting. The second element of samadhi, gathering the energies of the heart and mind, is, is called vichara. And that's sustaining that connection. So again, listen to the bell. We're gonna, I'm going to let it sustain and just listen to it all the way through and stay with it. And that sustaining quality, when we're able to do it, it counteracts doubt. Because by sustaining interest uh, long enough to become a little bit intimate with the object, there's no, there's no opportunity um, during that interested connection, that, that more intimate connection, for confusion, any kind of un- confusion or uncertainty to, to take hold and cloud the mind the sustaining factor. Now, doubt's the most insidious of any of these energies because by its nature, it's logical. And skillful doubt is part of discernment. It's an aspect of wisdom. You know, you don't want to live your life just believing everything you hear. That's just not going to work out. Doubt's important in navigating through this life. But on the other hand, running off on long, elaborate kind of jags of doubt just paralyzes the whole system. You know, if you're being barraged by all kinds of thoughts about, ah, these people up here are clueless and I, I can't do this, I've tried enough, you know. It's like the plug gets pulled. You know? This is a story. 
A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, about the teachers, and most importantly about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you're going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Please also doubt the doubt. Doubt the doubt. Really, you don't have to believe every bit of flotsam that floats through your head. You know, one person today in a group was uh, shared a transformative experience where it really dawned on them that I don't have to believe all this thinking. I don't have to. You know, some of the stuff that comes through. You know, Vichara? Yeah, V I C A R A. Okay. And, and we can cut through some of that doubt, and especially the kind of toxic self critical beliefs that are kind of flying around in us. There's some questions that can be helpful. If you recognize you've, you've gone down that, that dark alley of, of self-flagellation and deep criticism, what am I believing right now? You know, what am I believing? And then, second question, is that really true? Is every bit of that true? Come on, is it all true? And then you might reflect for a little while on what's it like to live with that belief? You know, how does that feel? It's like dragging a pound or dragging around 50 pound weights, you know, or something like that. And then you can ask, what keeps me from letting go? You know, what's comfortable about that, that criticism? And I'd make the case that it's that when we're in one of those jags, it's related to those survival energies again. You know, we don't want to be thrown out of the tribe, so we're this overly self-critical to make sure that we're doing the right thing all the time and not being cast aside. I want to be up there in the pecking order, I'm going to just, and it gets overcooked and we're poisoned by it. And then ask the question, what would life be like if I didn't have this belief? Whoa, you know, drop those weights, you know. Gosh, that might be freedom. might even be fun, you know. So, you're practicing, you aim, you connect, you sustain it the best you're able. And if you're able to do that for even a short period of time, you will experience a little bit of pleasantness. And that's the third element of this samadhi, this gathered energies of the heart and mind. Piti is the Pali word. Often translated as rapture or joy. And it can range from just a mild pleasantness, like, oh, 
you know, I'm staying with my breath, five or six breaths, and that's a kind of pleasant feeling. And then on the other hand, it can really, that PT can rev into something that's really beyond any orgasm you've ever had or imagined. That's the range. Think about that one. Okay? That's the range. That's the power of samadhi. Don't get graspy for it. Just do your practice. But when any level of piti is present, there's no hate, fear, guilt, or shame. There's no aversion. There's a pleasantness. And then as you practice, you continue to practice, the fourth aspect of the five aspects of samadhi, gathering the mind, arises in conjunction with piti, and it's called sukha. And that's a, that's a more refined, contented sweetness. Some, some people believe they come up together. Some people think that we can discern one or the other. That's for your experimentation. I named my dog Sukha. I have this 17-year-old dog. She is so peaceful and calm. It's amazing. She meditates with me every day. She knows the whole drill by now. Of course, she sleeps a lot. But, um, but when sukha has arisen, your thinking settles down. You'll notice that, that there's no obsessive planning or worry in the mind. There's no restlessness or worry. Another one of these survival energies is cooled. Okay? There's this feeling of okayness with sukha. And so as you settle more and more deeply, and practice gets more refined, um, you enter into the fifth element of samadhi, which is ikagata. It's a one-pointedness of mind. It's a unification of the mind. You're kind of one with the experience. It's not, the, the, the dual subject and object is kind of dissolved out. You're just... Have, this experience is just happening. There's no you, there's no it. It's just happening. You know? And that, that one-pointedness, that has the capacity to eliminate, counteract desire. You know? With this connection with your experience, you don't have any need or want for anything. There's no, you're not feeling lacking of anything. There's no sense of deficiency. Desires absent. Kaput. Done. So ikagata is, you could say it's synonymous with equanimity. So you move from this, this contented sweetness of sukha into this coolness of ikagata. And at this point, all those challenging energies are relaxed temporarily. They're dormant for the time being. So, that's under the hood what goes on when you're doing your practice. We're working with these survival energies little by little with our mindfulness and cooling them uh, temporarily. 
But when they're up, they're up. You know, so what are we going to do? We're visited by them a lot. You know, they're not uncommon. You know, so what do you do when you're, when you, there's a wave of restlessness, of worry, or doubt, or anger, shame, guilt, okay? This is just the stuff of life. But there's an acronym that has been used now for decades in, in our practice that might be helpful to you. And most of you or many of you know it. RAIN, R-A-I-N. An example of RAIN. You're doing your practice. You're sitting. You're walking. You just, and all of a sudden, your eyes light on somebody across the hall in some way. Your mind starts down the track of the VR track, the Vipassana romance track. Gosh, I like the way they move. They're so together, you know. I wonder what they like and what they're like. You know, oh, I'll bet they're fun and spiritual and sensual and kind and you're just off on this fantasy and gee I can imagine what it would be like to be on vacation in some exotic place with them and then living together and then divorced or whatever happens you know but at some moment you you awake and you go ooh what's happening oh this is wanting this is wanting you know, so the recognition of what's happening right then is wanting. You know, your relationship now has suddenly changed. You're totally identified in this fantasy, lost. And now all of a sudden, you know what's going on. This is wanting, you know. You're not completely lost in it. It may still be cooking, the lust or whatever, but there's a little more spaciousness through this recognition. You're awake to the wanting. The energy is still there, but through that simple recognition, the relationship now is a little different. You begin to, you can feel it in the body. So that's R, just simply recognizing what's going on. Now the A is for allowing or accepting what is going on. So in this case, okay, it's wanting. It's here. I'm not going to try to beat it away with a stick. It's just here. This is the weather pattern right now. It's wanting. And so you can withdraw your attention from the object, your object of your dreams, and come back and experience directly in your body this experience of wanting kind of unadulterated. This is wanting. You know, it may feel pleasant in some ways. It may feel, you know, it may feel like some agitation. You know, it may not be altogether peaceful, but you're, you're with this experience. You're watching it. It changes a little bit. You know, it may intensify. But ultimately, if you're with it without grasping or pushing away so much, just allowing it to be, it's going to go through its cycle and relax out, at least temporarily. And so you've had then a complete experience 
of wanting. You know, the, the recognition and allowing, they're like the foundation of, of our practice, of experience, the R and the A. So, okay, wanting in the body is like this. You know? So there was an arising, a phenomena, a wanting. There was this flood of physical sensations and mental gyrations. They grow, they grow, they subside, they subside. So we've, we've also investigated it. You know, we're investigating it. We're in that process. And we're investigating it the I. You can also say it's the I stands for intimacy, becoming intimate with the experience. We're investigating it with kindness. Kindness is an important part of it. You know, we're experiencing it as fully as we can, embodying it. So we recognize, allowing, investigating with kindness, intimacy. You know, we're going through that whole cycle, completed that cycle of that experience. And the end of rain. You know, it's 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 a kind of landing in the natural, um, perfected heart mind that luminous, wakeful, loving awareness. It's, it's settled. It's back to that naturalness, the end. So what RAIN does in, in a systematic way, and in, in a gentle way, it helps shift the attention from some of the less skillful reactions, we might consider less skillful. Behaviors, although they're well-meaning, are generally a little bit coarse and survival-oriented. Behaviors that are driven from the brain stem, the limbic system. It shifts the intention, the attention to a more compassionate relationship. A relationship that we could uh, call more of attending and befriending. Attending and befriending. You know, the a relationship... Um, that's, that's out of the more recently developed part of the brain, the frontal cortex, and uh, n- not in the more ancient parts of the brain, the reptilian parts of the brain. So this meditation practice, and one way to look at it is that it's a kind of gradual movement from these primordial survival energies, the fight, flight, and freeze energies, that have served our ancestors so well, to more and more being able to deal with situations in, a, in, a, in an attend and befriend basis. And RAIN is just a, simply a convenient way to remember how you can approach these energies in your life and in your practice. What's happening now? And can I recognize it? Can I allow it, accept it? Can I, can I investigate it with some intimacy and kindness? You know, you frequently hear us um, encouraging you to turn toward what is happening and accepting whatever has, and to, and to accept whatever has arisen. And La was talking about it last night. Sometimes we can't, <laughs> we're not 
totally there. I mean, the ultimate goal in practice, you know, is to open to whatever is happening fully with kindness, equanimity. But let's be real and not forget that we're, uh, you know, we're human. And sometimes it isn't so easy to open fully and accept what's arising. We're wired. Part of the survival wiring is to move away from unpleasantness. I like to use the example of 10th grade biology. You get the pond water on the little slide, and you get the, if you're, I don't know, maybe it's just something I did. I don't know. You get the Bunsen burner, on one corner of it, and you're looking through the microscope, and all these poor little paramecium and amoebae, they're just running to the other end of the slide. Well, we're not so different. We're really not. And and those are kind of our ancestors, too, if you go back far enough. So even when we have this beautiful spiritual intention of being with whatever is happening fully, great intention. Whatever it is, the grief, the physical pain, the shame, the guilt. Sometimes we can't be fully with it. We repress or deny or we bargain. You know, the bargaining, that's a, that's a good one. We've all done it. You know, we've learned about this practice. Something is up. It's unpleasant. It's a little bit intense. But we know how this all works. Oh, if I can be with this with some equanimity... You know, it'll run through its cycle and then it'll be gone. But that's what I really want. You know, so there's this kind of bargaining going on. Uh, But that's okay. We can recognize that too. Okay, gee, I'm, I'm not fully accepting this right now. Boy, I've got a lot of resistance today. Not, not fully in the game. And then we can include that in our that resistance in our kindly acceptance. It's okay. We can have some empathy for our human frailty. Oh, look at that. I'm just not up to that right now. But just the intention to be present with what is is preparing the seedbed for healing, for growth, for deeper understanding. And we're not going to be perfect at it. You know, when I look at my garden, I do what I can each spring and I have this great intention and it's kind of hit or miss. You know, I'm away teaching or this or that and all the weeds come and I do what I can. But the intention is growth, you know, flowering. But I want to underscore that the investigation with kindness Many people get this a little mixed up. They say, oh, investigation. That must be some analytical thing. Um, It's really an embodied presence of the experience. It's not simply about intellectually investigating or understanding. Yeah, that's, that's a part of it, and those insights arise on their own. But everything is felt through the body all the emotions and charged thoughts, we can feel them directly in the body. But investigation with kindness, it also brings another important perspective in play, and I mentioned it earlier. And and in, in that perspective of kindness, 
We're exploring what's going on and recognizing the supportive intent of that energy. The energies are not the enemy. You know, those survival elements that are rising and arising again. We can appreciate it, but not follow it. For example, fear is up. And maybe we're working with fear a lot. Simple knowing that it's happening and receiving, receiving that fear with a softening perspective that, that fear is really here trying to protect us from danger, to keep us safe. And at times it's useful and a lot of times it's misguided. There are not saber-toothed tigers around every corner anymore. You know? It's just a survival remnant. But it's the organism taking care of itself. It's loving itself. And, and if we look at it like that, it can encourage more and more self-empathy, self-compassion. It's just this organism trying to take care of itself. It's a, and it's a basic kindness we would show to anybody else who's, who's afraid of something. You know? Wouldn't beat them up for it. Oh, I'm so sorry that you're frightened. You know? And if it's wanting that you feel for the latest technical object or a person, you know, the softening perspective is that, okay, wanting is trying to bring you what's needed for comfort or if it's a person, for connection. It's all very natural. All aim to help you survive. And you can say, well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that, but I am not going to, my wisdom tells me I'm not just going to run from buying one object after another thinking that's going to bring me happiness. But I know where that's coming from. So I hope you're getting it, that these energies aren't the enemy. It's a, and it was a huge step in my practice when I realized that these weren't energies that they were getting in the way of my practice, you know? but a critical part of practice, to be included, embraced. You know? That it was a, a bit of a challenge to, to cultivate a, a softer, loving relationship with them. And okay, so you've got restlessness and worry and a lot of planning. I mean, who doesn't, you know? This softening perspective, again, is that one of survival. This organism is, is pretty smart. I've had all these smart ancestors, brilliant, kept a gene pool going. I've got that. I'm thinking this through. I'm planning, you know, I'm working it, you know? And, of course, excessive planning and worrying it just makes us sick. That's not wise, but the core of it is loving us, wanting us to survive. And if sloth and torpor has arisen and you're fogged in and you can't find your way to the surface, you're just in the molasses, you know. The softening perspective on that is that, ah, oh, well, this organism wants to keep me comfortable. really doesn't want me to maybe right now feel something that's going to be difficult. And... Of course we know, you know, that that short-term comfort 
really isn't prudent in the long term. We're going to have to face it. We're going to have to work with it, digest it, work it through. And if it's doubt that's arisen, in the more limbic love context of why this doubt, the purpose of this doubt, the softened perspective is that doubt doesn't want us to be fooled. It just doesn't want us to be fooled by anything. It's better to paralyze the system than to make the wrong move. So it's better to be frozen than sorry. That's survival. You know? So working with these energies is really akin to uh, interacting with a partner, friend, co-worker. All those relationships work much better if there's warmth, empathy, and trust. All those relationships work better. And that's what you're cultivating in, in, with the relationships to the to these energies. And so that's, that's the story of rain. And there's some more pieces that I wanted to add, but we'll save them for, for another time. So, these energies of your ancestors move through you. And this practice that you're involved in is a practice of patience, repetition, self-acceptance, courage. We're trying to turn toward our experience with as much mindfulness, equanimity, and kindness as we can muster. And it varies. So we're challenged with coming into a, a more friendly relationship with these energies that, that drive our life. The wanting, the aversion, the anger, the restlessness, the planning, the, the protective sleepiness, the doubt. We can meet them with appreciation and friendliness, and we don't have to follow them. We can withdraw our attention from that object that we're lusting after, whatever it is. We can rest in the experience within us. And we can even in our practice learn, and we'll be talking about this more as we move through the retreat, is to place our attention on just awareness itself. We're having these experiences and awareness knows. Slight shift from the object to awareness itself. Can, offer all, can also offer a little taste of freedom. So you, me, our whole species is charged with going beyond the reactivity and the constraints of these survival energies. We see the results of the enslavement to, the, you know, to greed, to hatred. You know, how it plays out in the world. It's not pretty. And your spiritual practice that you've come into works with these energies very directly. Understands, honors, and befriends, in a sense, your evolutionary history. And your spiritual practice surely 
and gently moves you beyond these patterns of survival reactivity. Moves you to a kind of cleaner, clearer expression of that natural perfected heart-mind to your inherent wisdom and ceaselessly compassionate heart. That's there. That exists in all of us, covered over at times by these energies. So in a nutshell, our practice is like we get these gifts from our ancestors and now we've got to work with them a little bit and kind of not be enslaved to them. Recognize them. Thank you very much. So let's sit for just a moment. From Ryokan. Like a little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Like a little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I too quietly turn clear and transparent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.